0: John chapter 20, just verses 30 and 31. It's the most important thing we're going to do today in these two sentences, to read them, look at them together, and contemplate them at the place of our hearts. John is putting a bookend at the end of his story of the resurrection of Christ and his appearance to his disciples. If you'll look up for a moment, you'll see where we were in the week past, thinking about Thomas's confession my lord and my god considering the testimony of mary and the disciples i've seen the lord and now john tells us this starting in verse 30 now jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name Thanks be to God for his word this morning. Well, it's interesting as we consider this call that you might believe. It almost makes it sound like a right response to the sermon should be very simple, particularly for those of us who have said, I have believed, I continue to believe, and I intend to believe to the end. John tells us otherwise, though, in 20 chapters of trying to convince us to believe. Our call this morning may simply be to examine the purpose of God's Word and its effect of faith in the life of God's people. Because John's exhortation in these two verses is truly perfectly in line with the exhortation of all of Scripture that you might believe. The most, perhaps, basic and simplistic quick read of any verse on any given weekday as you're on your way out the door, and considering, alright, what do I do? How do I interpret that? And, and what observations did I make? And now how might I apply it? In the most simplistic view of any scripture, you are always being called to believe God. To believe his word. And John, at the end of his gospel, reveals to us at the core the revelation of what we are to most importantly believe from God's word is just this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John's purpose in writing then seems very evangelistic, doesn't it? John is often the first book of the Bible that we call new believers to read. Because they're new in their faith. They have a very simple view of life in Christ, which in so many ways is wonderful, isn't it? In some ways, you almost anticipate that if you were to talk to somebody and have them say, I just became a believer in Christ, what should I do? You might be tempted to say, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't do anything. Maybe you should just enjoy this little bubble that you're living in where all it is is you and Jesus, and that's it. Because that's a wonderful time, isn't it? Can you think back to your conversion And when you first knew and learned of Christ, and the excitement and the newness of it, and though in your growth and understanding God's word, you, of course, have found gems that have taken you to new levels of faith and new excitement over his love for you, and yet there's still part of you, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, there's still a part of me that almost longs to go back many years and just say, I just kind of wish I was like I was when I first believed, when nothing else mattered. When the world suddenly just turned dim around the light of Christ. John's... John's... uh, Inclusion of his gospel into the Holy Scriptures was not necessarily his primary motive. He wasn't thinking about writing for the church primarily, though of course there is much for us to learn. And in fact, if you were to take some time and go back to John chapter 1 and read through the gospel of John again, you would see there's still a lot for us to study in all of this. It is written primarily that you might believe but it is also written in a secondary fashion that our belief in Christ might be more settled, might be more secure as we read from these words. Well, we, this morning, are faced with a great challenge to declare what we believe about God's word and work in the world, not by attending church on a Sunday morning, but by giving our attention to Christ. That just as if the main purpose of God's word, not just in the Gospel of John, but in the whole of the Bible, is that we might believe God when he's spoken to us. Then when we come to the moment of Christmas finally being here, then this is in one sense game time, isn't it? And on a Sunday, on, on a Christmas, on a December 25th that falls on a Sunday, it seems like you get the mixture of all the Christmas planning and then the normal craziness of a Sunday morning and you smash it all together and you kind of expect that you're going to wake up in some holy glow with a halo over your head and everything's going to be perfect. And I imagine that if we went around the room, we could probably share moments that already weren't quite perfect yet, Right? Maybe it didn't even start this morning. Maybe it was more like uh, midnight this past, last night or 2 o'clock this morning, whatever it might have been. We're faced with a challenge, though, today to give our attention not primarily to the wonderful things that attend Christmas, but to the true center of what Christmas truly is, the coming of Jesus Christ, and that we might believe that. So if we consider again John's purpose statement in the gospel, John's work is explicitly a testimony. That was our emphasis for the first few chapters of John's gospel as that word testify continued to come up throughout his writing. And again, his purpose statement flows perfectly with the purpose of all of scripture. This is part of why John's work has been accepted into the New Testament canon. Because not only does it have reliable witness that brings us back to the apostle himself, but it also shows us in its content that it is perfectly in line with God's revelation for us. John says in the beginning of verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now, John, along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all wrote their own story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which flows perfectly together, of course, but wrote them from different perspectives, all had this task of including certain signs and leaving out other certain signs. So, to refresh your memory, and my own as well this past week, John includes what we could say seven or perhaps eight or perhaps even nine signs in his gospel. The first one being in chapter 2. Do you remember the first of Jesus' signs in Cana? Remember what it was? It was at a wedding, and he changed water into wine. Yeah, the first of Jesus' signs. And that's kind of a funny one, as you consider how the signs increased, and and even leading up to the resurrection of of Jesus Christ being the conquering of death. What is so significant about his turning water into wine? Well, it's that there's a newness coming, just like we talked about with the kids, that that Jesus' arrival on this earth brings about new life, the mission of new life. And that's what he's showing us with the water being turned into wine. Next, we come to chapter 4 and see the, the healing of the official's son, where Jesus shows he has power over sickness. In chapter 5, we have the healing of the invalid. Chapter 6, we have the feeding of the multitude. Over 5,000 people filled, with, fill, filled their bellies with uh, what was at first just one little child's lunch. Next, we have in chapter 6, the walking on the water, which John doesn't explicitly call that a sign, but he includes it in much the same way as the others. After that, in chapter 9, a very big one that encompasses a couple chapters and by way of discussion is the healing of the man born blind, that Jesus will come and open our eyes to the truth of who he is. And then chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead, the big foreshadowing precursor to what Jesus himself would not only experience, but proclaim in his death and resurrection as well. The call for belief is then rooted in all of John's gospel, because in each of those signs, the exhortation to us is believe. Not to take that and say, all right, well, let me take that apart and figure out what all the significances are. Those are good things. It is good for us to go in-depth into God's Word. But if we've walked away from God's Word and taken apart all the grammar and the historical context and did all that hard work but walked away with unbelieving hearts, we've missed the core of John's exhortation to us and, indeed, the exhortation of the Holy Spirit. We see, again, earlier than our verses, this call to Thomas as Thomas says, unless I see the mark in his hands, let's just put, put, read it from here, unless I see his hand in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's fascinating that that comes just before John's explanation, his purpose statement for the whole book because Thomas then becomes to us the picture of the need of the whole world that each and every one of us will never believe unless God intervenes. And so Jesus then says to Thomas, have you, sorry, before that, he says, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Simple call of all of scripture. The call of all of scripture is just that, to place our trust in a God who can meet our need in the most mysterious and yet glorious ways. So what sign in your life points to your faith in Christ? Because today is a day, whether you have a platform to talk to many other family members or or whatever it might be, or maybe just in the quietness of your own heart as you think on Christmas, what sign will there be that the truth of christmas the true call to believe in that little baby in a manger what signs exist in your own life to that end we might recognize then as we consider that call a problem which is that we have a capacity to cheap and cheapen and diminish faith in christ thomas's inability to simply believe shows us that as well right that he was called to believe. He was was receiving a testimony from his friends, the other disciples of Jesus, and was simply called to believe. And Thomas looked at that idea of just taking their word for it as, as cheap, as not enough. He said that he required what they had received. And for us, if we aren't careful, we might realize that we have that same tendency in our own hearts as well, just as Thomas did. That we may feel like, man, it's really great that the apostles experienced all of this. And I see that I'm being called to simply believe it. But boy, I sure would have liked to have been there. I sure would have liked to have seen Jesus. To be able to put my finger in his hands and feel his side and see that it was truly him who was alive. John points out to us in our verses this morning that there were those who received these signs... Again, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Those disciples whom Jesus commissioned to carry the message of the gospel. And and to actually replicate many of the signs that Jesus did as well. They were able to experience that on a personal level. And yet, if we remember again what Jesus told Thomas earlier, there is a greater blessing, it seems, for those who believe without needing to see. And it may be simply that we are taking God's word for what it truly is when we believe. Our danger of cheapening faith is just that we may, in fact, give it little attention or diminish it. We may make it secondary to something else. That the true sign of spiritual maturity or of growth in Christ, of of holiness in our own personal living, could be something else. It could even be good things. It could be things like, how much scripture do you have memorized? Or how loudly do you sing on Sunday morning? It could be the the fruit of Christ's character in your life. We're not called to put our faith in the evidences of our faith. But we're called to put our faith in Christ himself. We cannot diminish that by putting our faith elsewhere. A simple faith is not as accessible as it sounds. In John chapter 5 and verse 40, there's a really great warning that John points out to us as Jesus is teaching and many are not believing. In verse 40, Jesus says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Before that, he says, You search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. See, he points out that the Pharisees that were listening and perhaps many others in the crowd were putting their trust not in what Scripture called them to do, but in simply their observation of Scripture alone. And this is why it's so dangerous for us as we consider a new year and think about a reading plan and like, all right, I'm going to keep up with this one. And then you heard the announcement and you're like, never mind. Maybe next year I'll come up with a more (laughs) accessible kind of reading plan. But whatever you might decide to do to bring God's word into your life, how easy is it for us to just say, yeah, I think I'm doing well because I've read my Bible every day. I mean, the truth is, is that you'd be better off if... If you had to choose between reading your Bible every single day and having absolutely no response of faith to it and having one day of the week where you truly focus in and you truly stock up on truths in God's Word and respond in faith, it would be better for you to do that. I wouldn't recommend that you then use that as a gauge and say, well, I might as well just read on Wednesdays. No, you should read every day. Of course you should. But you should read read with an anticipation of responding in faith. In faith because otherwise it is pointless. We might see in scriptures that we have life, but if we aren't drawn to the Christ of the scriptures, then we're missing the main point. Jesus says in John 6 and verse 40, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, if the conflict from the whole of John 20 is this whole matter of seeing the Lord and our, our sense that, boy, it'd be nice to have been with Mary at the tomb, maybe then my faith would never waver again. And then you back, move backwards to John 6 and hear Jesus saying, everyone who sees the Son of God, who looks on the Son, rather, and believes in him should have eternal life. It sounds like it's all about our physical experience. But John is calling us to look on the Son of God through the Word of God. That's what we need to be sure to prioritize in our Christian living. Again, our challenge on this of all Sundays is that on Christmas Day, I might need to ask myself, today will I look at Christ or will I be too distracted by the shiny lights or the other holiday activities that I love so much? that are really not bad things. Will I allow all the Christmas cookies I'm going to eat today or all the songs we're going to sing or the beautiful lights we're going to see or the presents we're going to unwrap, will I allow those things to point my heart to faith in Christ more than in satisfaction in this life? On a day like Christmas Sunday, we can be in danger of busying ourselves to death. And considering that we may need quiet contemplation for just a moment to think about what Christmas really is and what it means, we may find that in our hearts there's a greater longing for Christmas itself or something else to be the new saving power in our lives. I mean, what's the saddest day of the year generally? December 26th, right? At least for most Americans, and I'll say for me too. That is probably one of my lowest days because Christmas is just over. And I know it didn't satisfy the way I wanted it to. And every year I'll have to decide, I still have Christ. And Christ is all. And Christ is more than enough. The power of Christ's death and resurrection speaks through his word and reignites faith in us so that Christmas can truly be Christmas. And so that all the traditions and all the experiences and all the joys and laughters of it can truly find their place secondarily to Christ. I don't think that the most holy Christmases are spent in a dark room with a Bible on a lap and just seriously considering God's word, although that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. But perhaps the holiest of Christmases are those that we engage with the normal rhythms of life and the culture around us and our families that maybe don't even know Jesus with an attitude of worship, with an expectation of growing in faith through the simple celebration of Christ's birth. Recognizing that this this Christmas season is about giving, but it's about Christ being given to us. And perhaps on a deeper level as well, what John tells us in chapter 17 and verse 2 is that there was yet another gift that was given prior to that. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The plan already before your reception of the gift of Christ was for you to be a gift to Christ. That is not a call to pat yourself on the back and say, I must be something real special. Because the people I love get the best stuff. And if God the Father loves God the Son and wants to give me to God the Son as a Christmas present, I must be something really great. The means of the Son receiving the gift from the Father was the crucifixion and the resurrection. Was that He first had to die and pay the penalty for what created a gap between us and receiving that amazing gift and being that gift to the Son? Because of the cross, we then know we have a great security. Because it wasn't as though Christ died just to make salvation possible. Just to say that if you would like to receive this gift, then maybe you could come to faith and maybe you'll believe and maybe you'll live a holy enough life and maybe... No, there are no maybes in the Christian life. There are only certainties because of the message at the center of the Christian life. Because it is the obedience of Jesus at the cross that secures the exchanging of Christmas presents. What Jesus did at the cross secures that we can be his and he will be ours. Our trials and situations of life that that keep piling on us and and pulling our attention away at times from Christ or are truly only allowed or permitted, whatever words you want to use, they're appointed or permitted by God to show us a recurring need for us to put our faith in Christ to receive that gift afresh day after day, to in a sense then, if I may, say that every day is Christmas. You know, the big climactic scene in A Christmas Carol, which I've avoided sermon illustrations this whole season for, is when Ebenezer says to the ghosts of Christmas future, I will keep the spirit of Christmas in my heart and remember it every day of the year. So Christmas for Scrooge was not going to be the one day of the year where he goes from Scrooge to saint, but that he has a permanent change for the rest of his life as if Christmas were every day because that gift of eternal life in Christ is received by his people every day. It is secured in the work of Christ. And so we are then free to celebrate the joy of simple faith, of simply believing putting our trust in nothing else but Christ alone. John's mission in his word, again, is to see that we believe, and so then should ours be. Our mission as we come to God's word, maybe you need that word this week as you come to his word day after day, to, have, to be on a mission to believe what God's word has for you any given day, any given moment that you believe and would continue to believe and that you would call others to believe through the signs of your faith in your life. I want to end with just three simple ways you might express belief in Christ as the Son of God on this Christmas morning. First, celebrate with true joy and view all the festivities with the lens of Christ. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll see festivals and celebrations God is not against getting together and having a party and enjoying each other's company and and eating good food and celebrating and exchanging gifts. That's a very natural and biblical thing to do in a lot of ways. But would you celebrate with the true joy that through your simple faith, that, again, Ephesians tells us is even granted to us by the cross, through your simple faith, you might celebrate Christ and have that lens of Christ to view everything you do for the rest of this great day. Secondly, would you receive the word of God to strengthen your faith that that wonderful gift of Christ has been given to you with the security of knowing that you've been given to him already. That when the Father says, I'm going to give a people to you, it's not a conditional thing. The conditions were the obedience of Christ. And that little baby who was born in a manger, grew up in perfect obedience to the Father. But if he wouldn't have gone to the cross, it wouldn't have been finished. So he says at the end of his suffering, it is finished. Lastly, anticipate sa- satisfaction in Christ alone when normal life continues. Every day can't be a feast or a festival or a party. Although in <laughs> Christmas time, it seems like they never end because you got to catch up with everybody, right? But when normal life continues, and when you have that, I don't know, maybe you don't get that sad about taking the Christmas tree down, but when you have whatever your sad moment is where you think, man, I'm just in this rut, would you anticipate that Christ's desire is that you would be satisfied in him and that you have access to that satisfaction and that perfect peace that he proclaimed to his disciples upon his resurrection? You have access to that through simply believing His word.